Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Conversations for Life. And today, we get to continue our series on what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women in marriage. Last time, we looked at Genesis 1, 26-28, and we talked about the meaning and ramifications of the fact that both men and women are made in the image of God and receive the mission from God to go forth and fill the earth with more image bearers and to subdue the earth. Yeah, and I, I'll just say, I think that was a great conversation, and I, I would highly encourage anyone who's listening to this episode who hasn't heard that uh, to go back and listen to that one, because it sets the foundation for everything else that we're going to be talking about regarding God's design for the relationship between men and women in marriage. Yeah, and today we're going to look at Genesis 2. Yeah, and I should say, scholars have diverged on just how Genesis 2 relates to Genesis 1. Uh, because by the end of Genesis 1, you know, we're told that God completes all of his work of creation and then he rests. But then when you get to Genesis 2, suddenly we find ourselves back in an incomplete world. And, uh, you know, what was described as taking place in one day in Genesis 1 now seems to be a much longer period of time in Genesis 2. You know, God makes Adam first. Then Adam does a bunch of things, and God puts him in the Garden of Eden, and he names the creatures, and God makes Eve. Um, so it's helpful to think through real quickly just how does Genesis 2 relate to Genesis 1. And one of the things just to note about the book of Genesis is that frequently, uh, whenever it's going to introduce a, a new sub-narrative in the book, it usually spends uh, a brief period of time, a chapter, giving a broad overview as an introduction. And this is what we see in Genesis 10 and 11, for example. After the flood and Noah's family leaves the ark, Genesis 10 describes all of the descendants of Noah's three sons and the areas where they settle. But then the next chapter, it's almost as if we step back a little bit, and now we've narrowed down to just one place where the people are building a tower to the heavens called the Tower of Babel. So which is it? Are the people spreading out all over the earth, as described in Genesis 10, or are they congregating together, as described in Genesis 11? And well, the key is just to see that in Genesis 10, uh, as well as many other places, before it dives into a specific sub-narrative like the Tower of Babel, or here as we're looking at today in Genesis 2 with the creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, there, are, there are many places where, where it will give time for a broad overview, an introduction of what's about to set, set out. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. It's a brief summative account of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we get to the first sub-narrative, mm. which is the nature of the, the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, and then their rebellion in Genesis 3, and then what happens afterwards with Cain and Abel, etc. And so, uh, you know, one of the ways that Genesis tells us it's entering into a sub-narrative in Genesis in this book is through this phrase, and these are the generations of so-and-so. Uh, this phrase introduces a new sub-narrative in the book uh, that's going to be centered around one family. In the case of Genesis 2, we see this phrase in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this is Genesis' way of telling us that the next few chapters are going to be a narrative of the origins of the first people. And it's going to tell us about the fall and then what happens leading up to the flood story with Noah. So Genesis 2 is a narrative that's unfolding of what was described in a brief summative form in Genesis 1, which we looked at last week. 
Um, and personally, I'm thankful that it does this because there's so much more rich detail uh, that we see in the creation of Adam and Eve here in Genesis 2. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. That's a really helpful uh, thing to know as you're reading through this book of the Bible. It helps you put things in, in order and a framework in your mind. And, um, and we're going to kind of do the same thing right now. We're giving you a brief overview, and then we're going to get into more detail. But um, as we move into this part of the narrative, we really want to have a solid understanding of the main point of the chapter. Yeah. Um, so as we talk about the plot and we seek to interpret the events that unfold, we need to be anchored by the main point that the author's making. Mm. So what is the main point of Genesis 2? Uh, it's oneness. So the central idea that the author's driving at in the chapter is the oneness which characterizes the unique relationship between man and woman. And everything in this chapter uh, related to the man and the woman is about their oneness. Hmm. So if we hold on to this key idea, it helps us make sense of what's happening. And even more importantly, it helps us read the accounts of the creation of Adam and Eve and their marriage the way that the author of Genesis, who is Moses, and ultimately God, since um, this is inspired scripture, he's the ultimate author, helps us read this the way that he wants us to read it. Mm. Um, and we need to read this passage in all of Scripture, really any form of writing or communication, seeking out the author's intent, not ramming our own ideas into it. Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's one of the most critical things about reading the Bible, period, is always try to read with the intent of the original author, not with our own ideas or agendas. And definitely here in Genesis 2, uh, for myself, the more I've thought about this this key idea about oneness with regard to this chapter, the more I've realized just how subversive and really provocative Genesis 2 is. You know, for those not too familiar with the discussions that happen in academia about Genesis 1, there's a lot of discussion about how radical and provocative it is in relationship to what would have been accepted as normal beliefs about the cosmos and the origins of the world at the time that it was written. So to put it another way, you know, Genesis 1 is openly and provocatively refuting many of the false beliefs of the ancient world and would have been a polemic against many of the forms of idolatry that were common, like polytheism, which is the worship of many gods. Well, Genesis 1 refutes that. Uh, there's just one God. And uh, the idea that nature is divine or that it holds supernatural powers, which was a nearly ubiquitous idea in the ancient world, that's gone. The natural world is just God's creation. The idea that God is capricious and that the world was born out of some kind of ill intent or ill result of the gods, which was a very common belief in the ancient world, is rebuked by the declaration that when God made the world, he made it good. So many of the ancient beliefs uh, that were common uh, when Genesis 1 was written are rejected and refuted in this chapter. And so for that reason, it's really a worldview subverting story. To believe in Genesis 1 is to shape yourself in a way that's going to refute many of the idolatrous beliefs of the people around you. Mm, It openly assaults false beliefs and assumptions about the world that were common at the time. And I would argue that Genesis 2 does the same thing for destroying common views about human beings and about sex, about marriage, and about women that were held in the ancient world, and probably today too. Yeah, the ancient world was just as full of wickedness, oppression, and immorality as today. And of course, the details would vary depending on the time and place, but people were just as perverse and immoral as today. Um, So we need to understand that the basic building blocks of human life, the relationship between men and women, and marriage, and family, and children, and sex, and all these major components of life were affected then as now. 
And as you said, as Genesis 1 openly refutes a lot of idolatrous ideas about the world, Genesis 2 is a radical, uh, radically subversive narrative that refutes many ideas and practices related to the relationship between men and women and to marriage and family. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I, I want to set out real quick then, as we look at Genesis 2, what are some of these radical ideas? And then we'll actually, you know, unpack them in the story where they come up. The first one that's really radical for its time and for today, I, I would say, is that men need women for personal happiness and to fulfill their purpose as men. Let me just say it again. In Genesis 2, the first radical idea uh, that, it, it, that it proposes is that men need women that they need them for personal happiness, for fulfilling their purpose as men, and for everything, really, that men need women. Now, in the ancient patriarchal cultures, this was not something that was commonly held or believed. Mm. Women, quite frankly, just weren't valued unless they were valued as objects, sexual objects, political objects for you know, you know bargains and treaties and whatnot, or economic objects, uh, but they were, not, they were not valued as equals with men. They were often oppressed, treated harshly, and their value to men was often, quite frankly, scorned or ridiculed. But here in Genesis 2, we see that men need women for their lives to be complete. That is a truly powerful, um, world-changing, subversive idea. And we're going to see it come up many times as we go through the passage. Yeah, that's true. And another subversive and radical idea is that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. So just as Genesis 1 refutes polytheism, the belief in many gods, Genesis 2 refutes polygamy, sex and marriage with many partners. So given the harshness of life in the ancient world, it's unlikely that most people had the ability to have multiple partners or spouses. But for wealthier people, for rulers, uh, people who had the resources, uh, it was very common to have multiple wives and concubines. This was a sign of uh, wealth and power and, and all these things. Um, but Genesis 2 refutes any notion that sex outside of a monogamous relationship is good. Hmm. It's actually a denial of God's design. Um, and so that also means it refutes any religious activities involving sex, of which there were many in the yeah. culture surrounding Israel. And later in the history of Israel, you can see um, a lot of references to the Israelites worshiping local deities. And many of these rituals would have involved sexual activity, and, and God um, blasts a lot of that through <laughs> prophets yeah. later on in the Bible. And um, because sex and worship were frequently intermingled in the ancient world um, because of their, their worship of fertility gods, and this mm. united the idea of human sexuality and agricultural fertility. So all of this mm. is just rejected wholesale by Genesis 2, as well as any other kind of sex outside marriage. And it's pretty much impossible to overstate how radical this view would have been in a world where sexual activity with prostitutes or others was seen as an act of worship and where many wives and concubines were seen as a marker of mainly success and power. Yeah, I think it, it, it speaks to the power of Genesis 2 that if people lived it out, uh, even, even in a fallen state, redeemed and, and needing God's grace, even if they, they sought to live it out as close as they could, it would radically change society. Uh, mm. and just kill so many potential acts of wickedness yeah. right away. Um, but, you know, as if these two ideas weren't enough, there's a third radically subversive idea also here in Genesis 2 uh, uh, relating to the value of women uh, to men in work and labor as regarding just maintaining human civilization. You know, the ancient world, even more so than today, uh, required immense amount of work 
on everyone's part just to survive amidst the harsh realities of life, disease, death, war, natural disasters, and, and more, you know, I mean, all kinds of things just made life brutal and short for most people. And in this kind of world, men saw themselves as the champions of doing all the real work. But here in Genesis 2, it says that God made Eve as Adam's perfect complementary helpmate. And what this does is it tells us that men and women are designed to complement uh, one another perfectly in all the labors of life. And that is just no, to an ancient person, that's not a small thing. We might take it for granted today when, quite frankly, we have so much time to, for recreation and where, where labor doesn't seem so physically intensive. That's a pretty significant thing to say in Genesis 2. Um, you know, whatever works that... Um, must be done in the ancient world to maintain society. Women were designed exactly as, as men to help in that, to be their perfect uh, counterpoint and all of that. And this is a radical departure from a world where women were commonly mistreated, as I said earlier, viewed as objects, and, 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 and so on. And so any behavior or attitude or practice that would turn women into some kind of an object or deny their design as equal helpmates uh, is rejected here in Genesis 2. Yeah, so um, get, go in and, and looking at the passage here. Let's dive in. Yeah. Um, so the first thing to note is that the chapter divisions in Genesis 1 and 2 are not really very helpful. So for anyone who hasn't studied the Bible in detail before, the chapter numbers in the Bible were not part of the original text. They were added much later to help readers and to help locate things. And in some cases, they were put in places that actually break up the text in the wrong place. Mm. Um, and so most scholars agree that Genesis 2, 1 through 3 are the conclusion of chapter 1, and verse 4 is actually the beginning of the sub-narrative that details the story of Adam and Eve and their immediate descendants. Mm. So that's where we're going to start with, um, with this. In um, verses 4 through 17, we see, God made, uh, we see God make the man from the dust of the earth, breathe the breath of life into him, and put him to work tending a garden called Eden. And this, this is all really good stuff. And if we were going through just a strict ex- exposition of Genesis 2, we would spend a lot of time on these verses uh, because they tell us a lot about the beginnings of humanity's relationship to God. But for the purpose of our conversation, since we want to look at the, the, the relationship between the, the man and the woman, we're going to move on to verse 18, where the section specifically dealing with the creation of Eve um, and the relationship that develops between them uh, as a result uh, you know, is, is detailed. And of course, it will have significant implications for the rest of our discussion about men and women in the Bible as we move out of uh, beyond Genesis 2. So after God creates Adam and puts him in the garden to care for it, in verse 18, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And mm. there's a lot to talk about just in this one yeah, verse. Yeah. Um, the first thing is a reminder that, again, we want to anchor this narrative in our big picture, which is the oneness between the man and the woman. Mm. So this narrative is told with the end in mind. Or in other words, it's told to make a very certain and clear point, which is the essential intimate oneness between the man and woman. And it's really important to remember that uh, uh, Genesis is not saying that God created Eve as an afterthought or a side project or something like that. God is God. He's all-knowing, and everything that happens in creation happens according to his good, perfect will. So God had every intention from the very beginning of creating Eve in exactly the manner that he creates her. 
And that's really important. Yeah, it's not like God, you know, made everything and goes, oh, whoops, this isn't right. And then suddenly he thinks, oh, I'll, I'll go make Eve. Um, we know God is God, and we know that, that, that from the very beginning he knew exactly what he was going to do with creation. Um, and we know it's true, too, because even in, in later on in the, in the book of Ephesians, Paul will even say that, you know, that those uh, uh, whom God's redeemed, he foreknew before the foundations of the earth. So that would include men and women were foreknown by God before Genesis 1 ever happened. And so we know for sure that God had every intention of making Eve. Um, but, you know, why, so why is it here? Why is it written this way that makes it seem like Eve wasn't part of God's original plan? Why does it seem like that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's probably one that uh, a lot of people have thought before or wondered and maybe tried to, to not think about or not wonder about, um, but that's something we want to address. So from the very beginning, it is clear that God not only planned to make Eve, but he planned on how he would make her and when he would make her. And we're given the story of Eve's creation as it is because it feeds into that essential oneness and intimacy of the woman with the man. Hmm. So we're meant to see Adam's need for Eve, and by extension, man's general need for woman. And when God says, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him, it's telling us that Eve meets a deep core need within Adam and that on his own, he's incomplete. Now, this is not saying that every single man out there wants to or will get married, and it's definitely not saying that a woman exists solely to meet a man's hmm. need. A woman is created in the image of God. That is her primary relationship. Her primary identity is in relation to God himself, mm. just like a man. But the text is saying, it's emphasizing that Adam and Eve were created for each other. Mm. And you know this emphasis in Genesis 2 on the man's need for her probably is because at that time when it was written in the really highly patriarchal cultures of the ancient world post-fall, it's not hard to see how women were frequently dismissed looked down upon, or treated as objects. And so this is uh, working back against that sort of post-fall culture. Yeah, because we have to remember, even though these events are happening in the, in, in the, the biblical story <clears throat> before the fall, it was actually written after the fall by Moses. Yeah. And so the audience is being told the story in a certain way to make a point at their time and place. Mm. And that point, of course, as you said, is, uh, is teaching about the man's need for the woman. Um, so when God says that his creation is not good without the woman, quite frankly, you know, there are a few more exalting statements that one could imagine him making regarding women and femininity. That's right. Yeah. You know, that God says that there's an aspect of his creation that is not good and, and that Eve was created to bring that into alignment with everything else. I mean, if you're a woman, that should make you feel pretty good. I mean, Eve's creation is essential to the goodness of God's creation into a man's happy existence. Think about what that would have sounded like to the original audience and even today, that Eve's creation is essential to the goodness of God's creation and to a man's happy existence. Now, you won't find that in most of, of ancient religious texts. And, and what's also really significant is that God says that he's going to make a helper that's suitable for Adam. Now, lots of folks get hung up on that word helper, but in the thought of the story here in Genesis 2, that is a word that's intended to be a complementary, edifying term. In other words, women don't just meet a core internal need of men, they meet a core external need as well, the need for help taking care of creation. Eve will be a co-laborer with Adam, intending God's creation, and she was designed for that purpose. 
So again, when you think about the ancient world and even the modern one, women are typically objectified. They're treated as sexual objects or economic objects or political objects. But here in Genesis 2, we see that they are treated as valuable co-laborers with the man in the work of taking care of creation. In its original context, this word is a word that edifies and values the role and status of women in society and in God's creation. Yeah, and to further emphasize the perfect suitability of Eve, the story depicts God bringing all the animals before Adam who names them, but not one of them is suitable for Adam. And so God then puts Adam to sleep, takes one of his ribs, and forms the first woman from it. And so verses 18 through 22 are all about how Eve's creation results in a perfect counterpart for Adam. Nothing else in God's creation is suitable. Um, There's nothing in all the cosmos that's perfectly suited to coexist and co-labor with Adam as the woman will be. Mm. And God makes her from part of Adam's own body. Now, uh, without getting too much into speculation about why a rib, we do want to make a few points. If it seems like the method of Eve's creation is somehow derogatory... Don't forget that Adam is made from the dust of the earth. (laughs) So dirt is not exactly more glamorous than a rib. Right. Um, There's nothing more or less glorifying in terms of the medium God uses to make Eve than what he uses for Adam. And again, don't forget that Eve is just as much made in the image of God as Adam is. So this is not like a derivative uh, thing where she's somehow only images God through Adam or something like that. Right. That's not the point at all. Um, and, and yeah, just to back up what you were saying too, you know, um, in, in, in normal speak, you know, it, one can imagine the text saying this, God's going to make a helper suitable for Adam. And then to emphasize the point, he's, he's going to bring before him all the possible options of all the animals of creation and none of them are going to be suitable. It just emphasizes that there's only one being in creation that God made to be suitable for Adam. And that's the woman, Eve. And again, think about how the original audience would have, would have perceived that. You know, there's nothing else in all mm-hmm. creation that's going to meet your need. And in modern context, no, no job, no salary, no car, no nothing is going to meet your need uh, because God designed one person to meet your need, and that's a woman. And so, again, that, that's a hugely valuing uh, term or, or phrase for women. Um, and, you know, all of this, there, there, there really is incredibly powerful ramifications for the way that God does choose to make Eve. And I would say that these ramifications are all about the fact that God created Adam and Eve to be one. Like I said, you know, the whole idea of oneness. Um, Genesis 2 is all about how God created Adam and Eve to be one. God could have made Eve from the dust of the earth or presumably any way he wanted to. So why does he make her from Adam? Well, I believe that the reason is because Eve being literally from Adam's own flesh sets up a paradigm that a wife is, through union with her husband, his own flesh. Hmm. In other words, while Eve was actually made from Adam's rib in a literal way, uh, the declaration that he makes when she is made, uh, and the application that we're given afterward, which we'll get to in a moment, means that we are to see wives as the flesh of their husband. Now, that might sound weird, but here's where the radically subversive and, and I would say awesome reality of that comes out in real life. The application is that if your wife is of your own flesh, then you should treat your wife as you would your own body. If Genesis 2 is written in part to set forth a template for human marriage as designed by God, and if in this temple in this template Eve's being of Adam's flesh serves as a model for marriage, 
then the application is that husbands should treat their wives as they would treat their own flesh. Yeah, and just think about the implications for this in the ancient world and even today. One doesn't abuse or beat or oppress or hate their own flesh. Amen. Um, instead, one cares for and values and nourishes one's own flesh. So if a man sees his wife as part of his own flesh, his orientation should not be toward domination or tyranny, but rather toward nourishing and providing and protecting and caring for her. Mm. So the fulfillment of this paradigm is that a husband values and treats his wife, his wife as if she were his own flesh. Yeah, and you know, just to make it clear that any action or attitude or behavior that essentially harms or abandons or injures one's wife would be tantamount to be doing that to your own flesh. And, and by the way, Paul makes this exact point in Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 28, he says, "...in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man, and then he quotes here in Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, Paul is citing this very passage, and he's using the analogy of the wife being of the husband's flesh to exhort men to love their wives as they do their own bodies. Now, these are really profound teachings, both in the ancient times when, when Genesis 2 was written and even today. Yeah, and so Eve being from Adam's rib, when we read this in the context of Genesis 2, it reinforces the main point of this passage, which is the oneness of the man and the woman. Yeah. And this is to serve as a template for marriage in God's design. And uh, then we see that the very name for woman in Hebrew signifies her one flesh union with her husband. So verses 22 through 23 say, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Which this is just, you know, a poetic, um, exhilarating declaration of the oneness that we've been talking about. I mean, that's what this is right here, this, this, this four lines. And it's just, it's awesome. And, even, and so even the Hebrew name for woman is tied to this story. And that would have communicated every time it was used the principle that a husband and wife are one flesh. And the author made this crystal clear in his summary in verses 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Mm. So everything about the creation of Eve has been leading up to this point. The creation of the man and woman is a template for the marriage relationship. And at its core, this is about a unique kind of oneness that doesn't exist in any other aspect of God's creation. Amen. You know, it's it's so important when you're reading the Bible to to see you know a passage as a map and you always want to start with the destination and then work backwards if you know where the author is going himself in the text and you can then you yourself can follow along and go okay now i know how to interpret the details and it's so vital and and here verse 24 is sort of the summary of this whole section tells us that the author's point is about marriage and about the oneness of the husband and the wife in marriage and and this is again it's radically subversive uh, when it sets this paradigm for marriage as as, as uh, not as a wife who is leaving her 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 family and joining the man, but but actually the reverse, it's a man leaving his family and joining with his wife. This is this this is radical. It's it's reinforcing once again. I would say the need on the part of the man for the woman. 
So on top of the core idea of oneness that anchors this whole narrative, there's this need uh, that's all throughout this, this section of the man for the woman. It's not good for him to be alone. God makes a creature perfectly suited just for him. He makes her out of his own flesh. When he sees her, he names her uh, with a name that you know basically means out of my own body. And now he's to leave his family and join her. Everything in this passage communicates the oneness of the male-to-female marriage relationship and also of the need on the part of the man for the woman. So the idea from verse 16 on is that the man joins to the woman and is made complete in this union. You know, people can argue with that, but that's just the way it's written. Yep, and then we have verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we're actually going to leave that one until next time because this sets the stage for what's going to happen in Genesis 3. Yeah, so you know, I hope that you've all enjoyed this really radically subversive story of the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. I hope it's given you some really good food for thought. I would argue that it's unlike anything else you'll ever find on the nature of the, of, of, of the relationship between man uh, and women. And yet it describes so perfectly exactly what we feel and what we experience when it comes to this relationship in our own lives. Um, so next time, we're going to move on to Genesis 3 and look at how it all went wrong, mm-hmm. beginning with this last verse in chapter 2, and they were naked and unashamed. That's right. Yeah, so that'll be It'll good. be a good one. That'll be and, good. And, yeah, it'll be awesome. Um, so just a reminder, Conversations for Life is a listener-supported ministry of Cross Life. If you'd like to find out more or make a donation, you can visit www.crosslifetoday.org give for more information. And until next time, take care and God bless.